This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8 through 11. You are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? Today we will read chapter 7 of Genesis and begin our hearing of the story of the flood. In chapter 6, we heard the story of God warning Noah and commanding him to action, and now we will hear about the beginnings of this great desolation. As always, the authors use a variety of techniques to control the way we listen. We've already tackled the fact that approaching this story as a historical account of some great meteorological anomaly in human history is perhaps the weakest and most obtuse approach one can take. So let us leave that idea behind us. What we are being told is much more impressive and convicting. Let us trust God. Let us hear. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. The first thing that I would like to address is the important point that both clean and unclean animals are to be placed into the ark. Firstly, we hear the command to take seven pairs of all clean animals. This is in contrast to the previous command to take only a pair of each animal. Now, a lot of people make a big deal about this contradiction because, again, our sensibilities to the literary functions of the text are quite lacking. But there's really nothing to make a big deal of except for the fact that both commands are emphasizing different points. The first point, that is the pair of each animal, is hearkening us back to the creation of the behemoth. Yeah, I think the command at the end of chapter 6 is perhaps preparatory, if you will. God is delivering the entire list of what Noah is to do and what the coming events entail. So he says, you will take all the animals, zachar unechava, male and female, making no distinction between clean and unclean, because as we see in the book of Acts in the New Testament, the idea of clean versus unclean is totally a function used by God. He can make things clean and unclean depending upon his whims, so the clarification of God including clean and unclean animals for the kufa, the ark, almost seemed like an addition by the authors to remind us of this idea. We have no jurisdiction over what animals are clean or unclean. 
So in chapter 6, God said all the animals, and then clarifies in the next chapter. And again, remember, as this was delivered, it's not broken up into chapters. That's sort of an inconvenience of uh, the convenience of having chapter distinctions. So in chapter 6, he says all the animals, and then clarifies, yes, indeed, all the animals, clean and unclean, so that future readers would be unable to inject their overreaching of Levitical law to dictate according to their own whims which animals would have been included. It is a reminder and a chronological introduction to the concept of clean versus unclean and that it is a function of God's instruction, not a device of piety. Just hear the word for clean in Hebrew. Tehorah. Sounds a lot like Torah or Torah. No? I'm sure this will come up again, so let's not dive into it too much right now. I think the repeated unit of male and female is also a consistent dig against the man because it was man's inability to exist on this level of equation that catapulted us to this mess to begin with. Again, recall the language surrounding the creation of Eve. God had already made the Adam male and female as in Zekarwa Nekava. But even then, the Adam was not satisfied with this arrangement, and despite God's move to find a helper suitable for him in the form of the behemah he was to lead as a shepherd, he preferred a human being to rule over. This explains his excitement. At last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now the Bible is relentless, making the man remember. And in male, in Hebrew, that is zakar, also means remember. To further emphasize this point, when the Hebrew speaks of each animal, the male and his mate in chapter 7, it uses ish and isha. Literally, it says the man and his wife. Those are the very words that Adam invented for his own purposes. And it's quite interesting that it uses human language to describe the animals. Again, showing that according to scripture, there's not an actual difference, just different roles different functions. In other words, it's saying, take the animals, the man and his wife. Kind of funny that translators just ignore that. Yeah, yeah, the ESV translates it, every male and his mate, which is a bit of an unfortunate rendering, in my opinion. I think a literal translation, the animal, the man and his wife, helps communicate the humor that is present in the original. It it sounds silly, because it was supposed to sound silly. And you know, I think you could potentially make an argument that ish and ishto could simply be functional nouns referencing the intent of the two animals to procreate, which is the ultimate point of preserving them through the flood so they can uh, be fruitful and multiply once again. But the authors undoubtedly use the same language for both man and the animals. It's obviously pointed. You don't hear this lack of distinction between humans and animals anywhere else in our culture that I can think of at least. For humans, we make love. We are partners, spouses. It's very sweet and celebratory. But for animals, they just mate or procreate. It's natural for us to elevate ourselves to some higher level of consciousness or spirit. But the Bible strips us of this ability because of the language it uses. It's brilliant. So now that we have established that there is an inextricable link between the Adam and the Behemoth, It even makes mention of the inclusion of the unclean animals, but only a pair, not seven of them. These quote-unquote clean animals, I would argue, are stand-ins for the Gentiles, those who are from the surrounding nations. 
I think it's commonly understood that in the Mosaic Law, there were certain animals that were deemed unfit for consumption. And if someone were to eat them, it would make that person ceremoniously unclean and unable to fully participate in the sacraments. So because the goyim, that is the people from the nations, were without the Mosaic dietary laws, those outsiders were themselves considered unclean. Because of this distinction, many outsiders were viewed with contempt by the insiders, which is strictly prohibited many times in the Torah, stating repeatedly that the Israelites are to be merciful to the foreigner because they were once foreigners in Egypt. But despite this commandment, especially as recorded in the New Testament, the Jerusalemite elite specifically shut out the Gentiles. But the whole point of the law is to make clean that which was originally unclean. And since the Israelites are the first to receive the law, they are the first who are cleansed. But the goal from the get-go is to spread the law to the Gentiles, thus making all of them clean. But just hearing the law, obviously, is not enough. You have to live it. So all but one of the original Israelites died in the wilderness and never saw the promised land because they ultimately failed to follow God's instruction to the end. Even Moses fails. That's a detail we tend to forget. No, the only Israelite who makes it to the end is Joshua. But Joshua is accompanied by another who wasn't an Israelite, but an Edomite. And his name was Caleb. And this is very unsubtle because, well, Caleb in Hebrew means dog. Now, calling someone a dog is quite dehumanizing, even in our Anglosphere. But it's beyond nasty in the Middle East. You see, in, in Middle Eastern culture, dogs are considered kind of gross and unsanitary. And, and you certainly, at least traditionally, don't have the culture around keeping them as pets like you do in other parts of the world. So to put it another way, they kind of see dogs in a similar way to how we in the West would see a rat. And the Bible is making a big statement here. This dog, this unclean outsider, Caleb, walked in the light of Torah better than all but one Israelite. And how poetic is that, where you have exactly one Jew and one Gentile entering the promised land? No one is better, and God frankly doesn't give a damn about your lineage as long as you respond to his instruction. As St. John the Baptist says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. This language is also evoked in God's admonition of Peter in the book of Acts. Peter was among the Jerusalemites who argued for the compulsory observance of the dietary laws to the Gentile church. So in a vision, God shows Peter a variety of unclean animals to slaughter and eat. Peter refuses because of his commitment to the dietary law. But God rebukes him and commands him not to call unclean what God has made clean. In other words, Peter, like many other Jews, felt that it was his observance of the dietary laws that accounted for his righteousness. But Peter wasn't hearing scripture. Because it ultimately doesn't matter what you eat or don't eat. Whether you have a kosher diet or not, you will still die. Remember the words of Jesus, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and died. But here, speaking of himself, is the bread from heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. In other words, it is the bread of the teaching, what Jesus represents. 
God is saying to us, the audience, shut up and eat your scripture. Your response to the teaching is what makes you righteous, not the foods you eat or don't eat. So all of this is beautifully foreshadowed in the section where even the unclean animals are allowed onto the ark. The number seven attached to the clean animals shows a completeness to them that is lacking in the unclean animals. But the goal is to cleanse the unclean animals so that they may become clean by the living waters of the Torah instruction. This is the gospel teaching, again, very early in scripture. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. So again here, just like the last chapter, we have a lot of language that reminds us of the original creation in chapter one. Animals, birds, and every animal that moves upon the Adamah. I also would like to briefly point out that the text goes on to say that all the animals went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. So it is not God using the force to inspire all the animals to congregate like we might picture with our intellectual minds of fancy and wizardry. The animals move because of what God commanded Noah, which was tabi el ha or literally, you make them come to the vessel, leha chayot itak, to be alive with you which is intrinsically shepherdic. He's to bring the animals into the ark with him so that they may live, just like a shepherd brings a sheep with him to give them life. The animals move because Noah is a good shepherd, because he's Shema, he listened when God commanded him. And as the section concludes, we see parallel to creation, it takes seven days for Noah to bring all the animals into the ark. And after this, the flood came upon the earth. It goes on, in the sixth hundred year of Noah's life, in the second month, and on the seventeenth day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now, a lot of this is repetition, Rightfully so, it's to, it's to emphasize, again, that parallelism to the creation in Genesis 1. Uh, but one thing I want to point out is that we hear our first introduction to the Old Testamental concept of the windows of heaven. Sometimes this word is translated as floodgates. The Hebrew word is arubah, which is translated somewhat consistently throughout the Bible. Almost always it is in reference to the heavens. It is rendered as window, lattice, or something similar that is essentially a type of thing that does not obstruct one from seeing through or beyond, but must be opened to allow passage through. 
Of course, the thing passing through here is water. This clearly is the opening of the rakia, the firmament or expanse that God caused to separate the waters above and below in chapter 1 of Genesis. Aruba comes from the same root arab, which means to lie in wait, which even more so helps us understand these floodgates or windows as being an instrument used by God to fulfill his whims. He opens the gate that holds back the chaotic waters of Tohu Wabohu, and the earth is in desolation. In verse 12, we also hear our first mention of the phrase 40 days and 40 nights, which we will continue to hear. Uh, This is essentially the mark of a generation. The number 40 is the length of a generational cycle, whether that is a figurative generation, such as the functional completion of some substantial event, such as this flood, or Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, or literally a 40-year generation, such as a king ruling for 40 years uh, before being succeeded by a new king. And I'd also like to interject that the number 40, and the number 4 for that matter, is etymologically related to the word rab, which means great in Hebrew. Rabbi, of course, means my great one. Rabbi is is how it'd be pronounced. Uh, it means great one. It also means my master or teacher. You get the connection. So when it's used in this context in Scripture as a time of tribulation or judgment, the number 40 is used because of this Semitic functionality of it being a great, long, extended, arduous period of time. Saying this just now reminds me of the terminology we use in the Orthodox Church to describe our own 40-day tribulation, the period of time that we call Great Lent, in Greek, it's literally megali nistia, the great fast. Sometimes the Greek Orthodox just simply call it the 40 days. It's almost ominous when you hear it like that. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So we're hearing in the beginning of this passage a lot of repetitive language to emphasize the total desolation that these floods bring, right? We hear the waters increased and bore up the ark. The waters prevailed, which in the Hebrew is literally, uh, they were mighty, mightier than than the opponent, uh, and increased greatly on the earth. And and a third time in verse 19, the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. And again in verse 20, the waters prevailed above the mountains, and on and on. The flood, uh, waters have risen, like it says in verse 20, even above the mountains. So within the story, uh, the entire earth has disappeared. That's the picture that we should be seeing. It, it, It should be the picture that we got at the beginning of chapter 1 in Genesis, where the only thing present was the waters and the darkness that was hovering over the face of the deep, and the ruach, the wind of God, uh, was merachefet, hovering or relaxing over the face of the waters. 
This passage in the flood story, like much else in this chapter, like we've said, is clearly paralleling chapter 1. God hovered upon the face of the waters, and here it says the ark is floating, in English, upon the waters. But it's not the same word uh, attributed to God in Genesis 1, as we might think when we hear it in English. The word here for the ark is halak, which is the Hebrew word for walk, or to go. So the ark is not hovering gently upon the waters like God is able to, but it is walking atop the waters, or going about the surface of them, if you will. If we remember what Blaze said last episode about the ark being a stand-in or an icon of the Torah, an embodiment of God's instruction, and we hear that it walked on the face of the waters, well, I can't help but think of the story of Jesus, the fleshly embodiment of the teaching, walking upon the waters in the New Testament. The writers of the New Testament were very clever to insert these hints and clues as to who Yeshua, Jesus, is. He is the meek, naked man on the cross, the incarnate word of God, and he is our deliverance, just like the meek, crudely crafted kufa that God uses to save the land animals, including Noah and his family. That was their deliverance. Like the faithful servants at the temple in Luke's gospel who know immediately who Jesus is when they meet him, if we know the Old Testament by hearing it and truly submitting to the Torah, we too will know who Jesus is in the opening chapters of any of the gospels. Amen. And I also want to add that that reference Rowdy made to Jesus as the naked man comes from the Aksumite school of biblical exegesis present in Ethiopia's Tawahodo Orthodox tradition. So a special shout out to our fellow Ephesus schooler, Deacon Henoch Elias, for sharing that with us. Many in the West and even many in the East nearly always want to hyper-focus on Christ as the God-man, but here are the Semitic Ethiopians emphasizing his humility and his shame, yet we still call him Lord, so bravo to them. Anyways, with that said, before we go, I'd like to wish our fellow Christians from Western liturgical traditions a very blessed Lent as they start on their own 40-day trial this week. May God bless all of our listeners and have mercy upon our transgressions. Until next time. And he shall be like the tree which is planted by the stream.